0: We return to James today, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles, or you'll find it printed in your bulletin under the Fellowship Study page, James chapter 5. Now we've been in James for a little while, you're going to notice a change in tone in Pastor James. So I want to provide you an illustration to help you understand why. Last week, Jamie and I had the privilege of watching two little girls over the weekend, we took them out on a walk through the neighborhood one was nine years old and one was three now we actually have a push car for the three-year-old that she sits in and then I push and drive via a handle and every time we come up to an intersection I bring the car to a halt I say stop look both ways and after it's clear we take off and I thought lots of laughing because I like to zoom her across the street really fast well Last week, the three-year-old decided she didn't want to ride, but she wanted to walk like her older friend, the nine-year-old. So these two were having a good time walking, as were Jamie and I, until they ran off ahead of us, and they got too near to an intersection, and I saw my wife Jamie's face turn very serious, and she yelled at these happy-go-lucky girls, Come now. You stay close to us. You cannot go near the busy street. Why did Jamie's tone change at that moment? Her voice became more firm, more stern, more direct. than it had been on the entire walk, which was happy to that point. I'm sure you understand why. If those two girls got wrapped up in having too much fun and forgot to stay close to us and ran out into the intersection, it could be deadly. Friends, that explains James' change of tone. He is warning us right now about what can destroy us. God inspired James to write this because God cares about us, his children, and he needs us to stop, consider our environment, and become aware of what can kill us. So let us ask God for help right now so we can understand what James wants us to know. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We want to ask that you will help us to to hear James' voice and to also to see what your spirit wants to teach us, that we might be warned about the dangers, that we might also draw closer to you, that we might not only find safety, but live in such a way, walk in such a path that is pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to read verse 10, first from chapter 4, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And now, chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So last month I enjoyed having a couple of guest pastors come up here and speak to us. And while I am the pastor today opening up God's word, I have sort of felt like since we started in James that James has been a regularly visiting pastor. And this letter is his sermon to us. Pastor James has come and visited Heart City with pastoral words of wisdom, teachings on faith encouragement to spiritual disciplines calls to humility then we come to this section and James goes all fire and brimstone on us sounding much like an Old Testament prophet condemning the selfish wealthy people there's actually debate in my commentaries about whether James is addressing Christians or unbelievers many say that James words are too harsh to actually be addressing believers Notice he doesn't address these hearers as brothers, and he speaks of their judgment. They point out James' condemnation of the rich. You remember back in chapter 2, how the rich oppress the poor, drag them into court, how they blaspheme God. So many argue that James 5, 1 to 6 is actually James' lawsuit against rich, unbelieving oppressors to comfort, then, the poor believers, telling them to be patient because their days are numbered. Calvin writes... James has a regard for the faithful, that they, hearing the words, hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune, and also that knowing that God would be the avenger of the wrongs that they've suffered, they might with a calm and resigned mind bear them. Calvin is saying James is addressing and condemning unbelievers to comfort poor believers. I think he's right. But, I also think it would be strange in a letter addressed to God's people and actually ends with that same address to God's people to isolate and to pull out one section and to say it's for an unbelieving audience. We don't read any other New Testament letter this way. In fact, Old Testament prophets often addressed God's people this way when they hoarded wealth, like James, the the prophet Amos, He brings a lawsuit actually against Israelites and warns them of judgment. Have you seen what's happening, had happened recently at Hillsong? That church? Don't we as Christians also need this warning? So, who is James speaking to? I'd humbly suggest both. James is speaking condemnation to unbelieving rich people to comfort poor believers who are under their thumb and. He's warning rich believers about hoarding and ignoring the needs of the poor. I think it's kind of like the rich man, poor thing, poor man thing back in chapter one. And just to pan out a little bit, I'd argue that this is the third of three sins against humility. That's why I included verse 10 from chapter four. You remember there was the first one, which was slander. The next one was presumption. Oh, I, I know my plans are going to be a faultless. They're all going to work out for me. Well, now we have here in chapter 5 a third sin against humility, covetousness. And I say covetousness because being rich is not the problem. It can't be. Why not, Joel? Because James actually held up Abraham as an example of faith back in chapter 2. Abraham was very wealthy. And right after this, James is going to commend wealthy Job for his patience. So being rich, being wealthy, is not the problem. The problem is, greedy covetousness instead of godly contentment paul writes in first timothy chapter six but godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world but if we have food and clothing with these we will be content let's be real how many of us are content that we just have food and clothing and that's all Kudos for you. I don't think a lot of us know, though, what it means to be content with just the bare essentials. I mean, how many of us would really be just content with only food and clothes and that's all you have because your eyes are so fixed on another world? I actually don't see many people who are content in our day. Paul will actually go on to say then in that same section, for the love of money... Is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. My point is the problem is not money, but love of money, the craving of riches. The Bible teaches that covetousness is the insatiable desire to have what belongs to others. Like the Luke 12 man who had the bumper crop, and remember he wanted to build bigger barns to store it, and he but I'm going to lay up treasure for myself so I can relax and live it up for many years. Now, we may say that's not coveting. That was his crop to store and invest. God didn't think so. God called him a fool and drew up his obituary notice while he was drawing up his blueprints. Church Father Ambrose noted that the rich man had storage available in the mouths of the needy. He never considered an investment in eternal souls of his neighbors. And we need to see that all the resources we have come from God, not to hoard for ourselves, but to help others on behalf of our Savior. You recall chapter 4 ended, If you know the right thing to do and fail to do it, it's sin. That leads right into this section. Clearly James holds that there are poor people who are suffering. Yet the rich hoard their wealth and go so far as to hold back their wages too. A soul set on self-satisfaction suffers sin, leading to slaughter. James clearly does not make light of this, of hoarding wealth while others suffer. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Friends, this is a call to repentance. The problem is not whether you got money. The problem is whether money's got you. And in this culture, money's got a lot of us. It's got a lot of us. So we're going to see how guarding wealth, wrongly getting wealth, and gratifying selves are, with wealth are all categories of coveting. Guarding, getting, and gratifying, they're all categories of coveting. So we'll start with guarding. Verse 2, your riches have rotted, And your garments are moth eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Kind of scary. Did anybody notice that James just took off his pastor hat and put on his lawsuit, his attorney hat? The apostle attorney is bringing a lawsuit against rich believers. See how he starts with presenting evidence, the hoarded riches. Though well, they don't seem like treasure as James presents it. Rotted riches, mothied in garments, and corroded gold and silver. Now, you may say, James, gold and silver don't rust. My friends, if you think that, that only proves you're earthly minded. Actually, First 1 Peter 1, 1.7, <laughs> he talks about gold will perish. There's actually the story of a rich man who became sad. He went to see his doctor and found out he was dying. But he wasn't sad about dying. He was sad because he had worked really hard to get rich. And the pastor told him, You can't take your riches with you to heaven. The man went home so sad, and he got on his knees and he begged God, begged God that he could take his riches to heaven. And after many hours of hearing him beg, God finally says, Okay, you can bring one bag. One bag. Overjoyed, the man grabbed his biggest bag and he just loaded it with all these gold bricks. The very next morning he died. So he found himself standing in line at the check-in at Heaven's Gate. And the angel stopped him at the check-in and said, Hold on, you can't bring a carry-on in. The man insisted, I got permission, I got permission. So the angel went and got his supervisor. The supervisor came out with a reservation sheet. And sure enough, God had given permission for this man to bring a bag in. One carry-on. So the angels apologized. They opened the gate. And as he was entering, one asked, What in the world was so important that you acquired special permission to bring it in. The man smiled, opened his bag, and showed him the gold bricks. The angels looked at each other, puzzled, and one of them said, Why did you feel the need to bring pavement? Friends, that joke gets at the reality that the best things on earth pale compared to what awaits us in glory. What eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor mind conceived. What is in store for those who love the Lord? one day we're going to be like the queen of Sheba seeing Solomon's glory and we're going to say I didn't believe the reports until I came and saw it with my own eyes and behold the half was not told to me do we see our best earthly possessions as fading glories comparison to the glory which is to come with that James brings his first charge in verse 3 you have laid up treasure in the last days James' use of last days here refers to God's calendar. The next thing on God's calendar is what? The return of the Lord Jesus. And on that day, he's going to wrap up the world like a scroll, Psalm 102. And every person is going to be judged for how they lived. Actually, James is using really clever irony to get his point across. You think you're storing up wealth, but what you're really hoarding is God's wrath against you. What then is a crime? Ignoring the master's time clock. We're to be living for the return of our Lord Jesus, who is our true treasure. So, if God has given us gifts, we aren't to spend our lives clinging to them like idols. We're just we serve and worship a God who has given to us so generously, and sacrificially in sending His greatest treasure, His own Son, to free us from sin. And we need to recognize we've been granted liberty because of God's sacrificial giving. So it only follows then that we should give of our abundance sacrificially to help free others, to unburden them. That is the goal of the gifts God's given us. Do we believe in the promise in God's word that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ? Romans 8, 17. If so, we will not seek to store up earthly riches that are going to rot. Do we see our wealth as a means by which we can serve those that need help? After all, Jesus became poor, a poor servant that we might become rich. Philippians 2, 6-11. Do we think we deserve the money we got? All we have is a gift from God. Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 4-7, What do you have that you have not received? And if we have received it, let's not wrongly guard a gift which is not eternal. Next we move on. Our Apostle Attorney warns us of wrongly getting riches with his next charge. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Ever heard the phrase money talks? Mm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, James just put our money on the stand and it's talking, testifying. I think that's a scary thought. Everything we own will testify against us. That's what the Bible says. Actually, Job 31, 38 to 40, he says, If my land has cried out against me, and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment, and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat, and foul weeds instead of barley. What we have will testify against us, our possessions. Can you imagine Bernie, Bernie Madoff? all his money, all his lands, all his possessions, which he acquired illegally and hoarded and loved so much, all of it's going to be on display, testifying against him, one after another after another, convicting him. A James scene is actually one where a property owner would hire workers to care for his field, and afterwards the owner decides, eh, I'm not going to pay you. I'm going to keep my wages for whatever reason. And in James' day, the rich had a lot of power They could refuse to pay. A poor person could sing all they want. You never give me your money. They're not getting any funny papers either. This isn't a laughing matter. Now, we don't have the kind of rural economy in James Day, but the principle is that those who have others work for them need to be seeking to bless them for their labors. Our thoughts must be centered on how we can bless people, not what we can get out of them so this this principle is not just a rich to poor or an employee to employer to employee it goes the other way if you're the one working for someone else money yes is important but your focus as a potential employee should not be about what you can take them for how you might be a blessing rather as your focus how can i serve them The crime James is describing is godless business practices, whether you're an owner or whether you're the worker. We seek to be a blessing and not do it just because we crave money. And James adds, the cries of the needy have reached the ears of the Lord. I think we can recall how the Israelite slaves under the Egyptians cried out to God and God, what did he do? Smashed the greatest empire on earth. So the next charge is self gratification, which comes in verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self indulgence. (laughs) I think the crime's obvious. In Scripture, God clearly condemns selfish accumulation of wealth. But in our day and in our culture, wealth is not merely, wealth accumulation is not even condoned, it's admired. How many remember Lifestyles of the Rich and the Famous with Robin Leach? Wishing you champagne wishes and caviar dreams. How many home shows do we watch now all the time? People spending hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. The question for us we need to be asking is, when does a Christian have too much stuff? That's the question. When does a Christian have too much stuff? I think we can diagnose that by asking, what is the purpose of the things we have? What is the purpose of the things we have? Are they being used to love God and neighbor? Or are they being used to promote ourselves? That means you can have a mansion. with lots of rooms. But you probably better have a lot of people in there that you're caring for if you're going to have that much space. Love of God and love of neighbor are connected. When we're generous... To those in need, guess what? You're blessing God. That's something we have to understand. Proverbs nineteen seventeen: Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him for his deed. When we give to the poor, we're lending to the Lord. Nobody probably, you, can, you can actually lend to the God by blessing others. Think about that. I mean, meditate. It's like when you get to the poor. Guess what you are doing? You are putting a gift in your Father's hand, your Heavenly Father's hand. You are lowering yourself before God, who promises to then exalt you when you do. That's the humility part, friends. We need to discover that our true meaning in this life is not to self-promote, but to humbly seek to promote God and others created in His likeness, which is the way we become more. How do we become more? By becoming less on this earth. James is showing us the weakness of wealth to promote ourselves because we have eternal souls. See, material wealth, I think about it this way. It's like a temporary fix to fix the soul's thirst for meaning. It's like drinking coffee to cure the problem of exhaustion. It may hide the problem for a time, but it's no cure. I know, trust me. (laughs) And the verdict is in then. And it's most severe... You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Here, James comparing the rich who live self-indulgence and since self-indulgent lives, he's comparing them to beasts. You see, beasts are what we become when we live for stuff and not for God. Read Psalm 73. I'll be honest, I think most of American culture is in James Crosshairs here, here. Don't we? call ourselves a consumer culture. We're a consumer culture. What does that mean? I think we're like walking stomachs. Ugh, feed me! Isn't that the picture James gives us when he's saying we're fattening ourselves for the day of slaughter? I was thinking about this as I was driving. In Indiana, you see a lot of cattle that are let loose in those lush, grassy fields. Or they're penned in, you know, where they get troughs of grain. Why? They're given to fatten them up. the cattle eat and eat, enjoying all the gratification of the moment, never realizing that their self-indulgence actually speeds their own demise. The faster they get fat, the sooner they get slaughtered, and in our modern day, they never see the slaughter coming. You see the way of slaughtering cattle has changed? It used to be that workers would push the cattle off the truck and then yell and prod them to get them into the slaughterhouse. Not anymore. Not anymore. Companies have actually learned that the quality of beef is better if the animal is not distressed. It's best to relax the cattle as they approach the slaughterhouse. So they do all they can to reproduce normality to the process and to keep the cattle as comfortable as possible and as contented as possible. Today, cattle are calmly led in silence to the ramp. And as they walk into what they call the squeeze chute, it's a device that gives gentle pressure it's a pressure that mimics, actually, the nuzzling touch of a mother. They continue down this ramp onto a smooth, curving path, which gives the sensation that they're heading home like they've done so many times before. And as they mosey along, they never even notice that their hoofs are no longer on the ground. As the conveyor belt gradually lifts them upward, they're blissfully unaware. And before they can blink, a blunt tool strikes them between the eyes They're transformed from living cow to meat, and they never suspect a thing. They're transformed. The pioneer actually of this technology calls it the stairway to heaven. I give you that graphic illustration because James is saying we're in great danger, and all the more if we don't realize it. Our culture gives us nonstop pleasures that are the devil's deceptions to relax you, to keep you as comfortable as he can as he leads you, not to heaven, but to hell. A. W. Tozer said, I believe that entertainment and amusements are the work of the enemy to keep dying men from knowing they're dying and to keep enemies of God from remembering that they're enemies. So as we close here, what can we do, friends? I think James adds verse 6 to point us to our help. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Who is this righteous person who did not resist? Remember, James is writing to Israelites in the first century. It's possible that some of these people reading this letter, when it first came out, were the same folks yelling, Crucify him! Crucify him! As the righteous Jesus stood before them bound, not resisting. As Jesus was lifted up on the hard wood of the cross, his arms extended in love for self-indulgent men living for this earth, he was calling them to himself. And he now reigns in heaven as a risen Lord, and Jesus still does not resist. That's the good news. He does not resist self-indulgent enemies who come to him seeing their need of mercy to be set free of the riches of this day. All we have to do is see our need of him is greater than our need of anything else in this earth. That's all you have to do. You have to see your need of Jesus is greater than your need for anything in this world. If we admit we're dying ensnared by temptations and our only hope is Jesus' grace, our Lord Jesus will embrace you, friend. He will embrace you. In fact, maybe our Lord Jesus is seeking you right now. He seeks out the wicked wealthy who put themselves in a place to be found, actually. I think we learned that as children, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree, for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in that tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down from going to your house today, from going to your house to stay. The Lord Jesus can find a cheating millionaire up in a tree. Lord Jesus can find you too. Jesus can find you when you're up a tree. That's good news. And he knows your name. You just need to make effort to move towards him, to put yourself in the place where you can be found, even if you've got to climb a tree. And the Lord Jesus will find you because he redeemed you so that he could love you. He invites you to a far better feast prepared in eternity than anything you can snack on in this age. All you have to do is be patient for the coming of the Lord. And as we close, I think we all see our need to repent. Of some of the things that we've been craving too much in this life we need to see our need for the relief from the load placed on us by the rich who take more than their share and they've made us suffer in this life it's coming to an end the good news is we're one day closer if we're on the poor side to the end of all those bullies so we just need to think about our current situation in light of the return the soon return of our Lord Jesus friend you're on the winning team I know it looks like the rich and powerful are winning the game right now. But guess what? The Lord Jesus already came, won the game, ran up the score. The score is Jesus infinity, the wicked wealthy maybe two. And Jesus puts you in a game that you cannot lose for the last two minutes. So let's play hard and prepare for eternity. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are hard words from James. They rebuke each and every one of us because we confess we all have things in this world we love way too much. We don't love Jesus enough. Ah, We dare not contend with J.C. Ryle when he says the one thing that we will be surprised about when we reach heaven is that we didn't love Jesus, we should have loved him more. Help us to love Jesus even just a little bit better today, to see our need of him. And we come to you, Lord Jesus, and just want to thank you that you became poor, that we might become rich. So help us to give of ourselves freely to put our trust in you when we're under oppression and give us your spirit that we may have greater eyes for the glory which is to come, that glory when you return. May we be patient as we wait. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.